Hi, I'm Tracy. I'm April. And, and this, this is Killer Spirits. Welcome to episode 44. 44. What are we calling this one? You'll know because you clicked on it, but. Oh. <laughs> this is the Great Circus Fire of 1944. Oh, okay. Yeah. Apropos, we saved it for episode 44. Uh, I didn't mean to do that. That was a <laughs> complete, uh, you know, what you call it? Mistake. Yeah. Or not mistake, but. Happy accident. Happy accident. There you go. Thanks, Bob Ross. <laughs> Yeah, this is a this is a doozy today. Just so everyone knows, before we even feeling. get into the drink, I do want to just give that disclaimer that there are children involved in this one. This was uh, a difficult research, but I think the story should be told. It's quite literally a tragedy. It really is. Yeah, yeah it is a so. tragedy. So, yeah, buckle up. Buckle As up. if any of the things we talk about here are easy, but <laughs> right. However, anyway. we do try to insert a little bit of joy by making a really nice drink for you that you can choose to make or not to make. This one would be more if you went to the circus and there was no tragedy and you had a good time. Oh, yeah. So which a lot of people did. So as did I. I've been to a circus before. I don't I... really think they exist anymore, but I went to not one the when way I was they used to. really little and I barely remember it, but yeah. my parents didn't take me. I went with like a neighbor kid or something. I don't think that's a thing my parents would go to. Yeah. I don't think I ever went when I was little either. Mm. I just remember taking my little one once. Oh. And it was like not in a tent. It was right. in like a building. Yes. Yeah. And I don't recall there being animals at all. What they I do, like trap. It was like stuff? acrobatic stuff. Oh, okay. And there was, yeah, and they did like the, you know, it, the motorcycles and the cages. Oh, and, yeah. Yeah, I don't recall there ever, there being animals. And this is like I maybe think 10 years ago. I think they kind of like ago. steered away from that. Yeah. Agreed. Thankfully. Because of the, the abuse the animals did. Exactly. Um, well, today's drink is very, very fun. It is. Um, and if you would like to see a picture of it, we will post it up on our Instagram at Killer Spirits Pod. It's so pretty. It's so pretty. Um, so first of all, you take, I have these like stubby martini glasses, but you could use a regular size one. Um, you rim the glass in marshmallow fluff. Like I just used a butter knife mm. and put some marshmallow fluff on it and then dipped it in nonpareil sprinkles, which is like the little balls, ball ones. <laughs> And then um, I also put some extra marshmallow fluff on the back of several circus animal cookies and stuck them to the inside of the rim. And then you put it in the freezer because yes, the marshmallow fluff needs to harden up or else your animals will melt into your drink. Yeah. If you put it in the freezer, I would say like for 30 minutes. It's going to be perfect. Oh, perfect. And you can pour your drink in there, and it's going to stay that way the entirety, and then you could just pick them off and eat them. And eat them. So it's really good. Um, so in a shaker, you'll do ice. Um, I did an ounce and a half of vanilla vodka, an ounce and a half of cake vodka, um, like, I don't know, probably an ounce of the maraschino cherry juice, 
like, you know, the juice, the cherries come in, mm-hmm. like an ounce of that, um, an ounce of strawberry puree, which is the squeeze strawberry puree that you get at the, like, BevMo or bar store. Uh, you could make your own strawberry puree, but it's better when it's, like, sickling, sickeningly sweet. Sickening. Sickeningly sweet. Also, it's very, very smooth and has zero clumps in it. Yes, exactly. Which does no also seeds. help. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. Um, then about an ounce and a half of heavy whipping cream. You shake that, all of that goodness over ice, um, pour it into your martini glasses, and then top with cream soda. It is divine. So good. It is so good. I love how when you put the... Yeah, it's pink, and then when you put the the soda on the top, it got this yummy, fizzy, bubbly... It was almost like a, um, you know, like... I mean, essentially, when you have a root beer float, it's like the yes. soda with that, like, cream, ice cream. But it has, like, that flavor. It does. That cream soda kind of also mm. has. And then with the heavy cream, oh, so good. It is so delicious. I loved it. So if you're feeling adventurous. Yeah, make it. Make It'll it. be fun. I think it's a good end of summer drink. Yeah, I think even if you didn't go super fancy with, like, the garnish and stuff like we did, and you just had a couple animal circus cookies on the side. Delish. Yeah, you don't have to go wild. Yeah. But, I mean, why not? <laughs> YOLO. Isn't that what the kids say? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> oh, they don't say that not anymore. anymore. Oh, is that like early 2000s? Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm old. I was like when I was a kid still. <laughs> okay. So, now that everyone knows that I am not hip, let's YOLO. move on. <laughs> YOLO. Let's move on <laughs> to our story today. So, we are going to be talking about the Great Circus Fire of 1944 in Hartford, Connecticut. So, if you are from that area, I'm sure that you know this. Um, I'm not sure how well I knew this story. I feel like I'd heard of a circus fire before. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you live there, you may know this story. It is part of the history of that area. So, one of the books that I absolutely loved, it was called The Circus Fire by Stuart O'Nan. It is really, really good. I cannot recommend it enough. If you want to take a deep dive, which he obviously did so much research, talked to so many survivors, it is so good. I'm just going to give you not even a slice of the pie. Mm. I'm giving you like maybe two crumbs. <laughs> and then you could go read the book and get the whole pie because it's just so good. It is. It can be a hard read though. Mm-hmm. So... The Ringling family dynasty is a very interesting story in and of itself. And the circus was pretty much alive and well for 146 years, just recently dismantling in 2017. Oh. I don't know if you knew that. Really? The ring, Like the Ringling Brothers Circus gotcha. with Barnum and Bailey. So August Rungling, that was how their name was originally said and spelt, okay. and Marie Salome Juliar met in Milwaukee in 1852 and briefly lived in Chicago before moving to Barabu, Wisconsin. So August Rungling worked as a saddle and harness maker, and his family, who had immigrated from Germany, changed their last name to Ringling shortly after set- settling in the U.S., which was a very common thing. Mm-hmm. So the Ringlings moved around the Midwest during the early years of their marriage. They spent time in McGregor, Iowa, where four of their seven sons were born. Seven sons. That's a lot. That's a lot. And they eventually settled in Barabu or Barabu. I'm not sure if you're from Wisconsin. Don't yell at me. (laughs) (laughs) So they settled there permanently. So the Ringlings had eight children total. They had Albert, Augustus, Otto, Alfred, Charles, John, Henry, and Ida. So one girl. One girl. Of the seven sons, 
five would band together to start this circus empire. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, so it started as a one and five cent show and later grew to be known as the greatest show on earth, as we've heard. So after witnessing show animals arrive by boat one early morning in 1870, the Ringling Brothers decided to form their own circus, which I just love how this stuff happens. Like you just happen to be wandering around your life and you're like, huh, why can't we do this? And that's pretty much what happened. So Alf T. Ringling states that he and his brothers walked home for breakfast. They talked together for the first time of having a circus of their own over breakfast. Mm. Yeah, isn't that cool? So there is actually a memoir that Henry Ringling North wrote called Circus Kings, Our Ringling Family Story that you can get if you want to read. And Alf T. Ringling wrote in 1900 that, quote, when the last wagon had rolled slowly up the bank, Al, with a sigh of relaxation, turned to Otto and said, what would you say if we had a show like that? (laughs) (laughs) I think that's kind of cute. Yeah. So in the Roaring Twenties, the Ringling Brothers Circus netted millions of dollars. Yeah. Yes. And was considered one of the most impressive live shows. The circus was made especially profitable after the brothers began using railroads to travel to both small towns and big cities by train. Mm -hmm. So that's really, I mean, we've all seen the traveling circus. The traveling circus. Yeah, I think the um, train is like part of their, I don't know, memorabilia, but yes, like their symbol sort of a thing. Yeah, with all their boxcars and everything. Mm -hmm. So for a significant chunk of its 150-year collective lifetime, the show was headquartered in... Baraboo, Wisconsin, which became known as Circus City. In 1919, Ringling Brothers purchased Barnum & Bailey, merging two very powerful businesses. It was a very good business move. I didn't realize that. Yeah. That they merged. They merged. Well, the Ringling Brothers bought them out. Gotcha. And what's the word? Took over. Took over. Merged into each other. So as each of the brothers passed away, there would be an ongoing struggle for control, as is normal in health, uh, healthy families. <laughs> I was going to say <laughs> wealthy, wealthy family. Not sure how healthy. <laughs> yeah, everybody's trying to power up to the next spot in exactly. line for the money. So after Charles's death, his wife Edith and her children each received a third of Charles's shares. In 1943, Edith used this majority to nominate her son to the role of president and director which had been given by default to his cousin, John Ringling North II. Edith and Aubrey Ringling, Edith and Charles's niece by marriage, collectively held 63% of the shares in the early 1940s. So they She's had the majority. Majority. So they used this controlling power to nominate Robert Ringling as vice president of the circus. And Robert briefly served as president of the Ringling Brothers Circus from 1943 to 1947. And... He, as the new president, was basically advertised as the return of a ringling heir because Robert was really the only one of the original founding brother's sons to assume the role. So it was like a big deal. Yeah. It was touted. So the circus program read, a ringling son has taken his rightful place in the circus son, as in (laughs) S-U-N. So... The mantle of the Ringling Brothers, the famous founders of the Ringling Circus, has been draped on the broad shoulders of Robert Ringling, son of the late Charles Ringling, one of the most brilliant showmen that ever lived. So it was kind of a big hype for the circus at that time. Interestingly, Charles Ringling's estate, which Edith, Hester, and Robert occupied until their deaths, is now known as South Hall, which is part of the new College of Florida's campus. I didn't know that. That's random. It's very interesting. Yeah. 
So after 80 years operating the circus, the Ringling family sold the show to the Feld family, who had been involved in the business for some time. So the deal was signed at the Coliseum in Rome. Okay. Okay. According to historian Fred Dollinger Jr., quote, North and the minority owners, all veterans of battles for control, split the $8 million paid for the family legacy. Wow. That's a lot of money. So the Felds continued the show for another 50 years, first announcing in 2015 that the circus would eliminate elephant acts by 2018. I do remember this. The decision was quickly amended, and the 13 Ringling Elephants retired a year and a half early in 2016. And then a few months later, the Feld family announced the circus would not continue at all. Hmm. The final show was held on May 21st, 2017 at the Nassau Veterans Memorial Coliseum on Long Island. Do you go into why they decided to quit? Well, I mean, besides the animal part of it. There was a lot of reasons, I think. Okay. Um, so if you get the book, I'm sure that, that they talk a lot about it. Yeah. Um, but it, there was many reasons. I think partly it was just the public's outcry about the animals. There was not a lot of people going to the circus anymore. They were oh, losing money. There's just a lot of reasons, I think, that they just gave it up. So yeah. that wasn't the sole reason. But the closing message for the collective 146-year operation stated by the show's ringleader announced, quote, we never say goodbye in the circus, my friends. All we say is we'll see you down the road. Which I thought was kind of sweet, mm-hmm. but we probably won't. Probably won't. <laughs> so that was that. And I, I mean, actually didn't know that they disbanded in 2017. Unless everybody gets off their phones. Unless everyone gets off their phones, yeah. <laughs> So, unfortunately, leading up to 1944, circuses already had a history of horrific fires. In 1799, during Ricketts Equestrian Circus, the Philadelphia Amphitheater burned down, though no one was killed. P.T. Barnum shows endured many fires. A few even had some fatalities. Mm. The Ringling Brothers also endured fires during the 20th century, but none of those took lives up until 1944. But in Cleveland, Ohio, in 1942... So two years before our tragedy we're talking about today, Mm -hmm. a fire burned down the menagerie tent, which is the one that holds all of the animals. Yeah. Prior to a show, killing 100 animals, including giraffes, lions, tigers, chimps, zebras, and elephants. Wow. Even though it was horrific, very few changes were enacted after this, which is a travesty. And it could be possibly because there was not, quote unquote, people who died. Well, yeah, it just seems really expensive still, though. It is, but not a lot of changes happened, unfortunately. I wonder if they they didn't feel like they could make changes or they just didn't want to. Yeah, I don't know. It's a very it's I a would good think question. Like, if you're getting all those exotic animals, it would be really expensive not only to get them here, but then to take care of them. I know. Why would you, you know, essentially throw that away? I know. Hmm. So on July 5th, 1944, the circus came to Hartford, Connecticut after a week of performing in other cities like Providence, Manchester, and Bridgeport. They were actually supposed to perform a matinee show that very day, but had can- had to cancel due to being late. So their trains got in late. Mm. So the disappointment was basically front-page news and probably led to a larger attendance the next day on the July 6th oh, show. Oh, shit. Yes. The circus in town was big news, and people were excited. This was the age of radio, and the war had... You know, limited travel. It had limited everyday amenities. Right. So the circus was a wonderful and welcome diversion. And it had a, a long 
History in Hartford. The circus came to Hartford for had been coming for many years. So workers would roll all of the wagons and animal cages off the train and then begin preparing and constructing the big top, as we know. The big top that was that they had up that year was new. It was considered the largest tent in the world, they claimed. We don't know how true that is, but that's what they claimed. (laughs) It had come out of the sail loft the first week in May and had been waterproofed with 6,000 gallons of white gasoline and 18,000 pounds of paraffin. Um, that sounds like the worst idea ever. Yes. Throwing it out there. <laughs> it does. But this was a normal practice for many circuses, not just Ringling Brothers. So 70 canvas men had helped to melt the wax in cauldrons, thin it with gas, stirring it with paddles, and then sprinkle the mixture on the laid out sections and spread it with brooms. This is how they did it. The process was cheap and effective. So it was waterproof. It starts raining, you're fine. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's before everything was plastic. I mean, I get it. It just, yep. that's just a, the most volatile <laughs> yes. materials you could use. No, it's terrible. But sh- the show had treated their tops like this for years. Mm-hmm. So the city of Hartford sent police to the circus grounds to search for runaways. They were not there to inspect for safety. There are no records of Hartford Police or Fire Department inspecting the circus for potential fire risk, which is bonkers because there was actually similar laws in place for hotels, factories, and other gathering spots, but not the circus. So executive officers of the department would later say they could not recall, nor could they produce any records to indicate ever providing protective measures at any circus showing in Hartford over the past 30 years. It just wasn't a thing. Good. Wasn't a thing. Were they looking for runaways that were part of the circus? Uh, who knows? Or just runaways that... Possibly. I'm sure there were some runaways that were part of the circus, but just, you know... Basically, they were just there looking for hoodlums. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know? So, July 6th was a very hot day. It was already 90 degrees and very humid when customers started showing up hours before the 1 p.m. opening time. So, because of the unexpected arrival of people early... Because people were excited. Mm -hmm. The circus actually skipped several normal routine measures like watering the grounds and removing obstructions from exits. As the 2.15 p.m. showtime approached, more and more people, mostly women and children and elderly, because this was a matinee performance in the afternoon, and many of our able-bodied men were at war at this time. Right. They showed up. They were so excited to be there. This was the final day that Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey's greatest show on earth was in town, so people made time for this. Right. Due to the heat and the crowds, it was sweltering. So it was very hot. Like, hot, hot. And it's (laughs) humid on the East Coast. And it's very humid on the East Coast, too. So a few minutes after 2.15 p.m., scheduled start time, The brass band struck up the Star-Spangled Banner, and the circus began its show. So runaway cages or chutes, and I had a really hard time wrapping my head around what these were, and it's really hard to see in the pictures. I'll I'll post some pictures about what these are. But basically, these chutes are located at all the entrances entrances in case an animal tries to escape. So they actually bring them in in these chutes and take them out in these chutes because they can't just walk a lion in with the crowd Mm -hmm. there. So these were huge, and they blocked a large portion of the exits. 
The Flying Walendas were set to perform a group of daredevils known for their high wire acts without a safety net. No thanks. Yes. And there is actually a whole story behind the Walendas too, which is very interesting, but we're not going to get into that today. But who knows? It could be another episode mm. because there's some very interesting stories all throughout this that I, I just bet. kept like well, going off in a little, you know, side tangents. I would think that the circus would bring together such a mismatched group of people yeah but very talented oh very talented yes. and i'm sure like with very interesting histories very history history <laughs> you know what i'm trying to yeah, say yeah <laughs> let me take a sip of my vodka <laughs> so carl walenda and joe geiger rode bicycles across the wire a pole between them on which herman walenda stood on a teetering chair and atop his shoulders arms out wide carl's wife helen Wow. So, yeah, they're wild. <laughs> Emmett Kelly was also performing that day. He had created the clown figure called Weary Willie. And I know people have probably seen pictures of the, of him. So Weary Willie was based on the hobos of the Great Depression in the 1930s. And Weary Willie was a stark contrast to the brightly colored white-faced clowns of the era. And he would actually charm audiences with his sad face antics. Mm. So if you can think of like a hobo-ish looking clown with a sad face. Oh, yeah. That was Emmett Kelly basically created that character. Mm. So, of course, the ever popular elephants would also end the show with the changing of the guard, their handlers and Bolly girls dressed in plaid like the Highlanders. And if you don't know what Bolly girls are, that was basically carnival slang for the girls who sang and danced. Oh, Okay. Yeah, so use of this term probably came from the employment of real ballet girls and dancers in the great circuses of, like, 1880 to 1910, and it just kind of got shortened to ballet girls. Mm -hmm. So later-day ballet broads, as they were also called, remained in the show for many reasons, working in a featured act and often married to a staff member on the show. So they did all kinds of stuff. Mm -hmm. Anna Cote would be one of the children that day at the circus, along with her sister, Iva, Interestingly, and there's a, when you read the book, there's so many interesting little stories woven throughout, um, and they talk about so many more people. I'm really only going to touch on about four of them today, but um, the night before, Anna and her sister, the two of them were sleeping when Anna woke up and saw a man standing on the steps of their parents' room. She was very scared, and the man looked at her and said, don't be afraid, and then disappeared. So the next morning, she described this man and her father knew it was his father who had died long ago. Mm. So very interesting story there, kind of leading up to what happens to her. So in East Hartford, 10-year-old Donald Gale was in Mayberry Village when Holda Grant, which was a friend of his mother's, asked if he wanted to come along to the circus with her boyfriend and her daughter Caroline. And, of course, Donald was very excited and asked his father if he could go, and his father said, of course, also, once they arrived outside the tents, I just think this is so funny. Bugmen would sell chameleons on string leashes for 50 cents. They were supposed to, like, match your shirt after a while, apparently. That's cute. So Holda Grant actually bought one for Donald Gale. On a leash? It's on a leash. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Such a 40s thing, don't you think? I mean, it really would catch bugs, though. I'm sure it would, yeah. yeah. Elliot Smith, who was seven, was so excited to go to the circus with his mother, Grace, and his sister, Joan, who was 12 at the time. Mildred Cook took her children, Donald Cook, who was nine, Eleanor Cook, who was eight, and Edward Cook, who was six. 
Mildred Cook didn't have a lot of extra money to buy things, but she did splurge and bought them two bags of popcorn to share between the three of them. So you have to have popcorn at the circus. So by 10 a.m. on July 6th, the temperature in Hartford was already in the 80s. On the lot, the water truck was, again, supposed to sprinkle the midway one last time around noon, but they were running late, so they skipped it. Doors would open at 1, and you could buy all of the fun things, just like any circus. Huge pink balls of candy floss, candy apples, striped boxes of popcorn, and bags of peanuts, and, of course, ice cream from a Borden's truck, which was the perfect treat on a hot day. Yeah. There were balloons and circus pennants and buttons and pictures of the sideshow and big top stars, miniature sombreros and monkeys on a stick. So just so you can have an idea of, I mean, it was an exciting thing. Yeah, it sounds really fun. Yeah. So the program said, quote, more than an hour's time is given patrons before the performance begins to visit the Mammoth Menagerie and the International Congress of Freaks. Which, of course, you have to have. The bearded lady. But there were really no gruesome oddities like the double-headed fetuses and jars here because they kind of touted themselves as like a Sunday school show. Okay. That's what they really called themselves. Family friendly. friendly. So the quote-unquote freaks on exhibit were considered more traditional, not shocking. Mm -hmm. There was Mr. and Mrs. Fisher, the giant and giantess. Okay. Baby Thelma, the fat girl. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Of course, she's baby Thelma, right? Rasmus Nielsen, the tattooed strong man. Right. Percy Pape, the tall and gaunt. Frida Pushnik, the armless and legless girl. Hanka Kelta, the long-haired girl. So most people got pretty bored quick because they're like, These are pretty tame. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, a guy with tattoos. Yeah. (laughs) So they moved on pretty quickly to the menagerie, and they thought that was much more interesting because you got to see the animals there. Mm -hmm. So the menagerie held air-conditioned wagons of gargantua, and M. Toto. So Gargantua was the gorilla. Oh. They called him Gargi. That sounds scary. Yeah. So Gargi was billed as the largest gorilla ever exhibited. Probably not, but that's how he was billed. And the most famous animal since Jumbo, which Jumbo was like the famous elephant. Right. His lack of romantic interest in his significant other <laughs> was probably M. Toto. And his love for Coca-Cola was common knowledge. Like, that was kind of the lore around Gargi. So he hates his wife and he loves Coca-Cola. <laughs> Pretty much. That's funny. Isn't that funny? So according to the show lore, he hated humans, and he reportedly crippled several trainers and nearly strangled John Ringling North, who once stepped too close to his cage in the winter quarters. I don't like this. I say the word lore because who knows if this is right. actually true. Um, the Carrier Corporation had built his new cage with double panes of glass that kept the interior, quote-unquote, jungle-conditioned at 76 degrees and 50% humidity and also had the added advantage of stopping his old trick of peeing into his hands and tossing it through the bars at customers. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So at almost 2 p.m., people started making their way towards the tent after taking a gander at Gargi. It was so hot outside but it would actually be more hot in the tent. I mean, there's no air conditioning. Right. The bleachers and the seats were crammed together. And there were some really interesting stories that popped up days after the event of near misses, which I found interesting. A woman was going to take her grandchild, but waiting for the bus, she thought, oh my gosh, I think I left the iron on. And she went home to check, so they never made it to the circus. Good thing you almost you left your iron on. Right. 
A woman from East Hartford had taken her three-year-old nephew. She would brought him to the sideshow with her, and the performance scared him so bad that he wouldn't stop crying. Oh, no. Which sounds like a three-year-old. Yeah. She tried to distract him with ice cream and orangeade, but he was having none of that. And also, she had remembered the night before, she had dreamt of her dead sister dressed in black and seated on the bleachers. And she was so creeped out by that that even though she bought tickets, she basically returned the tickets and they left. Yeah. One family was about to head in when the mother suddenly fell. She, like, bent over and fell to the ground because something was wrong with her legs and she couldn't move them. The woman's husband tried to help her up, but her legs would not respond. So they had to leave and go find a doctor. She did not regain use of her legs for a year. What? Weird stuff like this. That's bizarre. Interesting stuff in the book, I'm mm-hmm. telling you. So the public toilets, or donikers as they were called, okay. were off the main entryway just past the menagerie connection, which was the last exit before going in. So if you were a boy or a man, you took a right into the opening. If you were a girl or a woman, you would head left which I just showed you with my fingers the opposite direction of what I meant. It's fine. <laughs> Nobody will know. Nobody knows. So a black iron cage filled the near ring, another one down at the far end. So our shoots. Poles rose all around them, ropes and rigging, hanging like vines, bright lights shining down. I mean, you can imagine what it looks like under there. The blue quarters were thick as telephone poles and seemed to lean dangerously over the slowly filling stands, each ending in a blue or red star stitched on the tent roof. So people are pouring in Mm -hmm. to this tent. Grace Smith had splurged on reserved seats toward the north side where she and her children, Elliot and Joan, sat. So she was splurging. This was exciting. They had to cross the barred iron chute that ran from the round animal cage and in between the bleachers and the grandstand beneath the canvas sign with exit in large red letters, and outside where the animals waited in their cages. So the animals were just kind of staged outside, ready to come into mm-hmm. these chutes. These chutes were taller than Elliot, who was 10, and came up to Grace's chest. So she's probably a normal-sized woman. They're huge. The chutes were used to bring the show's big cats in and out of the tent for their performance with anim- animal trainer Mae Kovar. Another interesting story we're not going to go into, but I feel like we could. Um, At least two of the exits would remain blocked by these large chutes, which were basically, again, just long cages Mm -hmm. for the animals to go in and out. So inside the tent were 18 rows, three of those on the ground before the riser started. The smiths were about halfway up in the middle of their section. Each row was supposed to have 16 of the wooden folding chairs, which were basically like tomato soup red. But an enterprising usher could actually overlap them and fit more people in. And he would offer the extra premium seats to customers who didn't like their original tickets, and then they would pocket the difference. So they had their own little racket going on there. I mean, everybody's got to make their cut. Yeah, and it's unclear how many rows had been overlapped, but there's evidence that there were at least some. Mm -hmm. So... Basically, these are going to be more barriers to getting out. Mm-hmm. Mildred Cook and her children were in the South Grandstand, a few sections in, and they walked the track on the side that was free of any chutes. At the end, farthest from the front door, separated on their eight-foot-high island in the middle of the performer's entrance, Merle Evans and his 29-piece band waited to start their intro. 
Behind the bandstand in the performer's entrance or back door, Hartford police officers James Kennefick and Henry Griffin stood guard, detailed to provide that afternoon's protection for the dressing tent. So protection as in like from people. Right. The true attendance that day will truly never be known. There are varying numbers. So everywhere you look, you're going to see a different number. It's most likely somewhere between eight to 9,000. Wow. Some reports. That's not what I was thinking. Yeah. Some reports have stated up to 11,000. I was thinking like eight to 900 people. No, there was a shit ton of people there. Wow. Most of them women and children. So the cat act was up first. Animal trainers May Kovar would be in the west cage with her small cats and Joseph Walsh in the east cage with his bears and lions and Great Danes. Such an interesting mix. Great Danes. Great Danes. Just throw them in there. Yeah. So the animals were brought in via the chutes. As each cat came in, a handler slid a board through the chute so it couldn't back up. So once it got in, you're not going anywhere. Right. They Separating do the same it. thing with um, cattle. Exactly. Like when they get cattle into a chute to like yes. give them vaccinations or whatever. they. That's exactly right. Yeah. And I was even thinking like a rodeo, how they kind of. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's mm-hmm. the same concept. The animals finished their act, and next up were the Walendas. And the band would start playing from Gounod's Faust. It's an upbeat little tune. I like it. I love it. That's perfect. That makes it like, you know, people were so excited to hear that when they came in. So Herman and Carl Walenda carefully placed the front wheels of their bicycles on the wire. May Kovar would start to send her cats through the chute one by one, and the cage boy would prod them on, prop men working the boards. Joseph Walsh broke down his last pyramid and started ushering the lions through the chute. In his book, Stuart Onan talks a lot about the psychology around people's reaction to a fire, especially in crowds. And we've all heard this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's rare that people witness the beginning of any fire, even in a crowded place. So accidental fires are, of you know, by definition, sudden, <laughs> unexpected events and catch people unaware. So they can't be anticipated and therefore initially elude detection by the simple mechanism of surprise. Psychologists who have studied disasters talk about the difficulty of breaking out of patterned behavior and responding to a new situation. So we're going to see a good classic example of this. So one natural reaction to a fire is to flee. Mm -hmm. Yet often people will look right at a fire and not register they're looking at a fire simply because their minds are on some other task or caught up with another expectation. So in this case, depending on which version you hear, the fire started really small, like the size of a silver dollar. But there are varying versions, which makes so much sense because witness accounts, especially from those who are under stress, are really unreliable. Right. So each person remembers things differently. So the fire was the size of a baseball, a football, a basketball, a dishpan, a briefcase, a small window, half of a tablecloth. It was circular. It was triangular. It was shaped like a horseshoe. Like, nobody knows. And, like, it matters. It doesn't really matter. But the common theme is that it started small. People saw that it was a small thing. 
So Detective Paul Beckwith, who was standing beside Thomas Barber, saw the beginning of this fire. It was a small fire. He said later he remained silent because he was certain it would be noticed and be put out by workers quickly. So his lack of reaction really fits in with that rigidity of pattern and behavior because he was there to catch a parole violator. He wasn't there to put out fires. Right. So it's like, you know, he's not focusing on that. And so once he realized there was a fire, he just assumed someone would put it out, which is an irrational assumption. But psychologists say it is shared by most of us not having the means ourselves of stopping a fire. Or how, how would we even know how to stop a fire? Well, and it's also like when somebody, like if you're on a bus and somebody freaks out on the bus and like starts screaming and threatening people. Right. You're probably not going to be the one. Exactly. But I mean, are, this like, was, are you going to be the one? But this Who's was going to poli- tackle the guy. Yeah. But this was a police detective. Yeah. So he was actually trained to respond to emergencies. <laughs> so he's probably more likely to overcome pattern behavior, but it, it didn't even happen with him hmm. is basically the point. So it's, it's really sad. It didn't. So across from the detective, a girl in the bleachers felt heat behind her and actually turned to her mother and said, is the tent supposed to be on fire? <laughs> Isn't that um, sad? No. No. So an usher in front of the bleachers saw the blaze and pointed towards it, as did a man coming back up the bleachers with a Coke he'd just bought from the vendor, and he was pointing with his bottle. He yelled fire, and some twisted to, like, look at him, but most people just kept their eyes on the show. So either they didn't hear him or they didn't believe him. Yeah. At this point, the fire was still on the untreated sidewall behind the Southwest Blues, directly in the center, right where the men's toilet met the big top, about six feet off the ground. So it hadn't involved the roof yet. There was a chance at this juncture, if people had gotten water on it, it could have been stopped. But that time's going to pass. So a trio of ushers from the north side cut behind the the blinkers, (laughs) the bleachers, and grabbed the fire buckets underneath. So... The bleachers did hold buckets of water underneath. At this point, it's going to make zero difference. So there was four in all. Each held four gallons of water, which were filled before every performance by a guy named Chief, apparently. <laughs> so the buckets <laughs> the buckets were full, and the first usher hefted one and chucked it into the fire. The water splashed across the bottom of the, of, of the flames. It did absolutely nothing. That little piece of water, it's like taking a bucket of sand off the beach. It's not going to, it does nothing for you. The fire was at eye level, a yard wide and five feet high. So another usher tried another bucket and then another bucket. The third usher threw the last one, but at this point the fire had already stretched too high and it was out of reach. (laughs) So they tried to pull down the sidewall, but it was too late. The flames were eating the roof, finding that glorious fuel that they'd put all over this tent. So all they could do now was help the people try to get out. So Anna Cote, the one who'd seen her dead grandfather, remembered, quote, I looked up to the right over my shoulder and saw the fire. By the time I looked back around, my sister and her friend were gone. So it's starting to be mass chaos. Yeah. So the Walendas saw the fire at this point. You know, they're way up high. And the band leader, Merle Evans, saw the signal that they made about it, and he actually stopped the music. People failed to react because most people who saw the fire believed it would be put out quickly, just like the detective, and there was no concern. At the far end of the tent, Merle Evans knew that the fire was not a joke, and he could see Joseph Walsh still had 
the cats in this cage. And he actually leaned over and yelled to the ringmaster to get the lions out because the tent, the tent was on fire. So Fred Branda, who was the ringmaster, immediately called the Wallendas down and started alerting others. And Merle Evans cued the band and they struck up the disaster march, which was Sousa's The Stars and Stripes Forever. And this was actually a signal to all people who work for the show that something had gone seriously wrong. And Evans chose this particular tune because every musician knew it by heart. So the flames made their way to the roof, and now everybody could see the fire who was sitting there. People stood and chairs fell over, and this is when mass chaos really ensued. So the plumed horses were waiting by the back door, getting ready to perform when Fred Branda dashed out and ordered them back to the paddock. Some performers who were waiting outside the tent knew the cat show had just ended and actually thought for a moment that a cat had gotten loose when they heard the sounds. Then they smelled the smoke. Ushers and gate men told people to keep their seats. Don't worry, we see the fire. It's under control. And some people listened to this at first. The people in the southwest bleachers needed no direction. They bolted from the flames, running east toward the performer's entrance. And the ones in the low rows had it easy with nothing in their way. If they ran when they first saw the chance, they would have gotten out pretty easily. So those who hesitated were basically buried in the wave of people coming down from above. People lost their balance on the narrow boards and fell taking down those in front of them like dominoes. Oh, God. Some went through the spaces between the seats, banging their heads on the stringers, getting wedged in between. The next wave of people stepped on them. Anna Coat said later, quote, I couldn't stand up and walk down the bleacher, so I put my hands on the bleacher and slid down to the next one. I remember doing that a couple of times, and then my mind goes blank until I get outside. Her sister Iva was actually already outside and had come back in to save her. But then the fact that she found her in a crowd, she said later, was just a true miracle how they would have even found each other. Because it was so many people. So many people. Some people were still not moving. They were just sitting or standing there, like entranced, as if this wasn't actually happening, which is a reaction psychologists call collective disbelief, which I could totally see happening. Mm -hmm. Above the southwest bleachers, the fire suddenly flashed like the striking of a giant match, some people said. Or as one woman described it, quote, it was as though someone punched a button and a light went on. The wind took the flames and pushed them up one seam. So the flames shot up the laces and shot through the roof, and then it reached the top of the center pole. It split into three different directions once it, once it reached the top. So the paraffin on the canvas basically turned to gas and burned. And people were screaming. Women, children, men, chairs banged and crashed to the ground. Over the PA, the announcer asked everyone to leave their seats in an orderly fashion. Oh, good luck. But then the power went out and he was cut off. Not that anyone was listening anyway. So the track near the front door filled with people. And they'd come in that way. So that was really the only door that they knew. And so they would actually, they actually ran past other exits that they could have taken, but they didn't realize it. So that's another problem. So the massive crowd pushed against one another, trampling on those who were too slow to keep up. 
Children holding their parents' hands were snatched away by the movement of the crowd lost, which just makes my stomach. I, I, I have no words for that. People got buried under piles of chairs, little ones too. Some parents picked their children up and wrapped them around their front, telling them not to let go like little monkeys. Some children like hopped on their parents' backs also. People at the east entrance and the lower rows in the middle of the south grandstand made it out semi-smoothly, but that didn't last because the canvas above the front door was ablaze and the heat radiating down on top of those rushing to leave was just burning them so badly. So people were dressed for summer. Their skin was exposed. I mean, some kids had no shirts on because it was so hot in there. Some people scooped up children on their way out who had been separated by their parents. Children they didn't even know. They were just scooping them up on the way out, mm-hmm. which is pretty amazing. Um, and because, But because they wouldn't have known this, parents actually went back into the fire to try to oh save God. them, which happened a few times, and the parents died. So people had to crawl over piles of chairs as they collapsed, and people stepped on them, cutting their legs, bruising their feet, breaking ankles, So those who tripped would be trampled or you could just be stuck in this tangle of chairs. And there was obviously mass panic. So the intensity of the fire cannot be understated. It was spreading really fast. And exits were blocked by these chutes, making escape almost impossible. Or you'd have to crawl over the chutes and people were getting stuck in them. So lions were still in the chutes with attendants trying to, like, push them through with sticks to get them moving, even as people were trying to crawl over these chutes. So one mother fell and actually dropped her child on the chute, and his arm fell in the slots, and a panther inside reached up and ripped at his arm. Yikes. So eventually all the cats were prodded out to safety, which is good. Men were flinging chairs out of the way, Though, like basically hitting others, they didn't even, they didn't even fucking care. They were just picking up chairs and like flinging it. Like if it hits grandma, they don't even care. Like just, they're just flinging it. That's another hazard on the way out. Mm-hmm. Um, Donald Gale and Holda Grant was holding Holda Grant's hand. Remember little Donald? Mm-hmm. And they were making their way across the chairs as quickly as possible, but it was painstakingly slow because how the hell do you crawl over these kinds of chairs? A sailor was pushing his way to the front and punched Holda in the jaw, knocking her into the chairs. God. Donald lost his footing, and then people mowed right over him, burying him. Don't even care this is a child, because your only goal is to get out. The younger and stronger pushed the older and weaker out of the way and then stepped over them. Though some did help. A young mother from Hartford hit the railing of Section C with her two-year-old and couldn't break loose, And she later said a thin 30-ish man in shirt sleeves reached over the track and lifted them both out so they could escape. So there was help there, but there was a lot of chaos and really, really bad things happening. So for some, the best bet was to go over the back of the bandstand, and this was several feet above the ground. So many did escape this way, but some severely injured themselves in the fall. They broke legs, hurting their backs. Um, people did stand below trying to catch children who jumped, which did help. In some places, the sidewall was staked down to the ground so tightly that there was no way to get underneath it. And this was especially true behind the northwest bleachers, just to the left of the marquee in the ladies' room, which was, you know, a, a good place for kids to sneak in. So they put it, they really staked Tightened it into it the ground. Yeah. yeah. 
So some were able to duck under the sidewalls in other areas, but everywhere there were obstacles. Wagons and stakes and crates, buckets and kegs and bales. I mean, it was just a fucking mess in there. So a mother fleeing to the east end tripped over a coil of rope and fell on her son, whom she was carrying, bruising his forehead. Like, you just couldn't get... There was no clear space to get out of here. So once the fire breached the roof and the tent became basically a chimney, which was like sucking cooler air in through the exits and shooting it hot out the top, Mm -hmm. the paraffin acted as a constant accelerant, and the vast area of the canvas provided an endless supply of fresh oxygen. So many who exited the tents were horribly burned. Children were running around crying, trying to find their parents. Some ran straight back into the fire without realizing they were doing it. Many did not realize how badly they were burned, and they were just wandering around aimlessly, unsure what to do. They were, I'm sure, horrific shock. Engine companies 2, 7, and 16 received the signal to go to the scene at 2.44 p.m., one woman recalled, quote, I, to- I stood transfixed and saw one woman outside the tent. Before my very eyes, a burning piece of canvas ignited her dress and then flame enveloped her. It all happened so fast. It was like a nightmare, unreal. So there are so many stories in the book that will literally break your heart. So I'll just say a few of them. A man leaves the tent and realizes the hand of the child he's holding is not his own, and he runs back in. Emmett Kelly, a.k.a. Weary Willie, held the canvas aside and actually helped a lot of people out. He was touted as a hero after this. There's a pretty famous shot of him carrying a bucket of water that I'll post, and it's surreal. And I believe, I didn't write this down, but I do believe that... um, because of that picture, it, they actually called this day the day the, the day that the clowns cried. Because it, it's just very sad. So high up, the guy ropes or tensin, tension cables parted. The rigging gave way, and the poles by the northeast corner slumped inward. Then the center of the canvas. So the tent sagged slowly, not at once. There is actually a video of this that you can find on YouTube that was shot by someone way back in the day, if you can believe that. The flags on top were bending almost horizontally, and then with a hissing and swishing sound, the big top collapsed on itself. The heavy center poles falling one after another. So basically they were smashing the animal cages, which there was no one in them, no no animals at that point, but there was still a lot of people in this tent, and it crushed. Anyone who was in the tent was crushed under this. The burning tent settled on top of those that were left inside, pinning them. So under the pile by the northeast chute, Elliot Smith could hear people above him moaning and praying. At the bottom of the mound on the track, Donald Gale thought his leg was broken. So he actually tried to push himself up, but he was buried under people too. He couldn't get up. Several survivors said that the one thing they will never forget about the circus fire as long as they live is the sound of the animals as they burned alive. But there were no animals. It was people. It was all people. All the animals had been taken to safety, actually. Mm -hmm. The people on top burned when the tent collapsed. Elliot Smith was trapped underneath them and could hear them screaming the entire time. So Donald Gale was also trapped under a pile of people and chairs, and the heat 
fused his knuckles into lumps and seared his arms up to his shoulders. He passed out, obviously. Yeah. It was so painful. So in many fires, people die due to smoke inhalation long before the fire touches them, that, and which is the most common thing. Hmm. But this was the exception. People died by burning. They did not buy, die by smoke inhalation. So people who had jumped off the top rows of the grandstands and bleachers and broken their ankles or legs and they couldn't run were helpless and they were also trapped and tangled under this burning canvas. So the fire ate their clothes and then their skin and then their tissues. The stands burned and the bleachers burned everything. The, this part of the fire was most likely the hottest because the circus painted their grandstand chairs with a dip method hanging them on hooks and lowering them into a bath of that year's color, which could change year after year after year. So over the seasons, the chairs built up thick layers, all of them volatile. So you just have layers upon layers of on these chairs. So the engine companies finally arrived and found that they were blocked by the row of elephants in the street as well as the crowd of people outside. It had only been minutes since they, since they had received the alarm and the tent was already on the ground. It took that small amount of time. They saw people running towards them screaming. Many of them were on fire. Beat cops showed up to help. Many of them who had family at the circus that day. I mean, you would be hard-pressed in that town to find one person who did not have someone at that circus that day. Mm -hmm. So firemen attempted to spray the fire. Some tried to rescue those still near or inside the tent. One fireman entered where the tent had been, now completely burned, and saw a boy by May Kovar's ring who looked like he had been kneeling in prayer, his head resting on the ring curve. He wasn't charred by the heat, but his head had cracked open from the heat, oh his God. brain sticking out through the fissures. Okay. That's how hot it was. He saw one man in the center ring cut in half by a pole, one half on either side. Jeez. Donald Gale was still alive and came to as cold water started cascading through the layers of the bodies on top of him. So the firemen oh are starting God. to shoot water in there. Elliot Smith had never lost consciousness. He laid there looking at the ground until he finally heard voices and felt the water. Firemen had to crack the bodies that lay on top of them as they were fused together like lava from the heat. But they were finally able to extract them both and carry them out. It was unbelievable that people were still alive in there. That's unreal. Yeah. Neighbors set up a space on the lawn of the maternity home to take chi children that were missing from their parents and were able to direct parents there to find their children. People kneeled and prayed, walked around frantically trying to find loved ones, I mean, children were screaming, crying for their mom. Like, the people were so separated. It was just chaos. People were picking up bodies. Some lay on stretchers uncovered, basically frozen in grotesque positions. One woman, colored a, col a golden brown, lay naked on her back, rigid, rigid as a statue. Her bladder let loose and a stream of urine arced straight up from her. Oh, my God. Yeah. One man tried to pick up a body, and his hands had gone through the flesh right down to the bone, and the bone was so hot that he burnt. He basically burned himself. So the book goes into a lot of detail about the aftermath of the fire. 
That's why I think you all should read it. <laughs> Basically how neighbors opened up their homes for victims and only a select few homes had phones for calling relatives. Mm-hmm. A Plainville woman actually left the grounds believing her son had died in the fire. She searched and searched and then she went home on the bus. She just thought, he, I can't, he's gone. Because, I mean, many people in there were incinerated so badly you wouldn't even be able to recognize them. Mm-hmm. When she got home, she received a phone call from his grandmother in Bristol who told her a stranger had brought her son to her. So according to her son, this man helped him out of the tent, and when they couldn't locate his mother, he, the little boy knew the name and address of his grandma. Oh. And so the man took him by car to his grandma's house. After they first went to his mom's house and found that no one was home, he took him to his grandma's house. So... Yeah. Wow. They never knew the man's name. That's crazy. That's nice. So there was a lot of stories like that where where people were saved and um, people were helped. A white circus bus started filling up with survivors who were taking them en route to the hospital. A soldier held Donald Gale on the entire bus ride there, which is so sweet. The halls became full of stretchers. Some children were screaming in pain. Others were eerily quiet. The lobby filled with relatives of the dead and missing. They were crying, asking for information, wanting answers. It was complete bedlam. Yeah, no you one can has imagine. any answers. Nobody has answers. Some of the burned walked the mile to the hospital. Can you imagine that? Bodies from the scene were taken to the drill floor of the armory in town. It was 185 feet by 200 feet, so it was a big space to place the bodies. There's actually some pictures. I'll post one of them. Uh, it you don't really see everything's under like covers and things like that, um, but you can kind of get an idea of what it looked like in there. So wired green casualty tags were placed on the bodies where possible. They were segregated by sex and age, laid out on narrow army cots. So the children were set up in three rows by the west entrance, and then ten in, men in the middle, and many were faceless and missing limbs. Relatives would sign in downstairs and provide the description of the person that they were looking for, and depending on the age and sex of the person, they would look in one of those three areas. Then they would take a full pass if they were unable to locate their loved one. So each person was taken through with a police officer and a nurse. Wow. There were three first aid stations in case people became overwhelmed, and there were six priests in attendance. Some bodies were completely unrecognizable. The coroner did note not one single case of asphyxia. So the nobody's dying from smoke inhalation. They all burned alive. Victims did not die. Yeah, that way. There, um, there was no roof to force the smoke back down. So death certificates read either fourth-degree burns, trauma to head and torso, or a combination of both. And he was certain that a third of the bodies would never be identified. So either burned or you were trampled. Mm-hmm. That was it. So Mildred Cook and Edward Cook were both at Municipal Hospital in critical condition. But Eleanor was missing. And unfortunately, little Edward, who was six, he would end up dying that night, which is heartbreaking. Mildred's sister went to the armory to see if perhaps little Eleanor's body was there. She was taken to view number 1565, Everybody was numbered at that point if they were not yet identified. Once they were identified, they would take the number off and put the name. 
So this child was this child's body was not burned and was intact. And in fact, if you want to Google it, people, I'm not posting this picture, but if you want to Google it, you can look up number 1565 from this fire. And there is a picture of her that the coroner did take. Her hair was light brown, which was the right color for Eleanor, but she and she was also wearing a white dress. But her forehead had been swelled from being trampled, and her teeth seemed wrong to her. So Mildred's sister thought this was not Eleanor. But also Eleanor did not live with her, and she didn't really know what she was wearing that day. So Mildred's sister-in-law also went to view number 1565, who was being called Little Miss 1565 at this point. And she reached the same conclusion that this child was not Eleanor. She stated that Eleanor had been wearing a red play suit, not a white dress, and that Eleanor had eight permanent teeth, and Little Miss 1565 had all baby teeth. Mm. So she's like, this is not her. So, of course, again, this unknown child would become known as Little Miss 1565 and would remain a mystery for years and years and years. Nobody claimed this little girl's body. And I think that that she was in the spotlight so much because she wasn't burned beyond recognition. Right. She was very much intact. So she would actually be buried without a name in Hartford's Northwood Cemetery, where a victim's memorial also stands. Two police investigators, Sergeants Thomas Barber, who was there at the fire that day, and Edward Lowe photographed her and took fingerprints, footprints, and dental charts. And despite massive publicity and repeated displays of the famous photograph in nationwide magazines, that famous photograph I told you could look up, mm-hmm. she was never claimed. So Barbara and Lowe spent the rest of their lives trying to identify her. They decorated her grave with flowers each Christmas, Memorial Day, and July 4th. And after their deaths, a local flower company continued to decorate the grave. Isn't that sweet? In 1991, the body was declared to be that of eight-year-old Eleanor Emily Cook. Even though Cook's aunt and uncle had examined her and said that it did not fit her description. So the Connecticut State Police Forensics Unit compared hair samples and determined they were likely from the same person. So the body was exhumed in 1991 and buried next to her brother, Edward, who had also died, like I said. In 1981... Lowe's widow announced that Lowe had identified the child and contacted her family, but they basically requested no publicity. In 1987, someone left a note on 1565's gravestone reading, Sarah Graham is her name, 7-6-1938, date of birth, six years old, twin. So notes on nearby gravestones indicated that her twin brother and other relatives were actually buried nearby. So somebody thought her name was Sarah Graham. So in 1991, arson investigator Rick Davey, along with co-writer Don Massey, published a book called A Matter of Degree, The Hartford Circus Fire and the Mystery of Little Miss in 1565, in which he claims that the girl was Eleanor Emily Cook from Massachusetts. So Davey also contends that there was a conspiracy within the judicial system to convict the Ringling defendants, which we're going to go into this in a minute, and that Seggy was the arsonist. <laughs> I have too many S's here. So I'm going to talk a little bit about Seggy in just a minute. But he feels that in this book, he feels that this was arson, hands down. 
So Davy spent six years researching the case and conducting his own experiments as to how the fire really may have started, and he described the original investigation as both flawed and primitive. That's his opinion. So Eleanor Cook's brother, Donald Cook, had contacted authorities in 1955, insisting that the girl was his sister. 1565 was his sister, but nothing came of it. So Donald did later work with Davy to establish her identity. And Donald believes that family members were shown the wrong body in confusion at the morgue. Hmm. So he doesn't believe that they were shown the right body and that, that this little girl was actually Eleanor. So various assertions put forth in a matter of degree have been fiercely disputed by investigators who worked on the case as well as by other writers most notably Stuart Onan in the book that I talked about and Onan points out the fact that little miss 1565 had blonde hair while Eleanor Cook was a brunette and the shape of little miss 1565's face and that of Eleanor Cook's face are dissimilar and the heights and ages of the girls do not match. Perhaps most significantly, when shown a photograph of Little Miss 1565, Eleanor's mother, Mildred, immediately stated that it was not her daughter. She firmly maintained that stance until her death in 1997 when she was age 91. So she was badly injured in the fire, and she had been unable to claim her two dead children, and she was too emotionally traumatized to pursue it later, obviously. So... Like I said, little Edward died in the hospital. So she had been told that Eleanor was not in any of the locations where the bodies were kept for identification. She believed that Eleanor was one of two children who had been burned beyond recognition and remained unidentified. Onan thinks that Eleanor Cook may be body number 1503. So he further points to the differences in the dental records of Eleanor Cook and the records made of Little Miss 1565 after her death. So it is an interesting story because... It's still technically a mystery. Has she been identified? Has she not? Nobody knows. Hmm. But her brother did believe that was her. So in that sense, possibly he got closure. So on July 7th, 1944, charges of involuntary manslaughter were filed against five officials and employees of Ringling Brothers. And within the ensuing days, the circus reached an agreement with Hartford officials to accept full financial responsibility and pay whatever amount the city requested in damages. The circus paid almost $5 million to the 600 victims and families who had filed claims against them by 1954. All circus profits from the time of the fire until then had been set aside to pay off these claims. All circus profits. That's crazy. So although the circus accepted full responsibility for the financial damages, it did not accept responsibility for the disaster itself. The five men charged were brought to trial in late 1944, and four were convicted. Although the four were given prison terms, they were allowed to continue with the circus to its next stop, which was Sarasota, Florida, to help the company set itself up again after the disaster, which is so weird to me, but okay. So surely they must have had some financial pull with politicians. They must have. So shortly after their convictions, they were pardoned entirely. One of the men, James A. Haley, went on to serve in the U.S. House of Reps for 24 years. Hmm. So there's that. Donald Gale and Elliot Smith both survived but had many long and painful surgeries. Donald's hands and arms were burned so badly he endured many skin grafts and never fully regained the use of them. 
Donald Gale would grow up to build his own darkroom and in 1955 started a job at Newing- Newington's Children's Hospital in the photography department. And he actually remained there for 33 years. He had two children and he passed away in April of 2008. Elliot Smith would grow up and have four children and he passed away in December 2008. Hmm. Very close to one another. In 1950, Robert Dale Seagy, or Seggy, I'm not really sure how to say that. He was from Circleville, Ohio. He actually claimed during a police interview that he was responsible for setting the fire. Why? Following, Yes. <laughs> Why? And Davy, who wrote the book about Little Miss, 1565, believes he did. Hmm. So following the interview, Seggy signed a statement admitting to setting the circus fire and a series of other fires, and several murders since his youth. So around the time that this happened, that the fire happened, he was like 16. So he was young. Seggy was a 16-year-old roustabout, which is basically just an unskilled laborer, who actually worked for the show from June 30th to July 14th, 1944. Okay. And he claimed that he had a nightmare in which an American Indian riding a flaming horse told him to set fires. According to police authorities, Seggy further stated that after this nightmare, his mind went blank, and by the time it cleared, the circus fire had been set. Right? So some of, the, some of his hand-drawn images of his bizarre dreams and images depicting his claimed murders actually appeared in an, um, an issue of Life magazine on July 17th, 1950. Okay. So, In November 1950, Seggy was convicted in Ohio of unrelated arson charges and sentenced to 44 years of prison time. However, Hartford investigators raised doubts about his confession as he had a history of mental illness and and it could not be proven that he was even in Connecticut when this fire occurred. So Connecticut officials were also not allowed to question Seggy. I don't know why even though his alleged crime had occurred in their state. So I don't really know what that hoopla was about in the 1950s, but they couldn't talk to him. So Seggy, who died in 1997, denied setting the fire as late as 1994 during an interview. Hmm. So now he's saying, I didn't do it. So because of this, many investigators, historians, and victims believe that the true arsonist, if there had even been an arsonist, was never found. Was he, I wonder if he was just... I don't know, a kid that wanted to be in the spotlight. Yeah. I mean, he definitely was in jail for some other shit that he did. Right. So he did some other stuff. I'm not saying he's an innocent person. No. It's just unknown if he did this. (sighs) Yeah. You know? So the 1944 Ringling Brothers Circus Fire in Hartford, Connecticut will forever remain a mystery. It forever changed the lives of the survivors and the loved ones of those who died and not only physically, of course, but psychologically. And I was reading that many of them would never set foot in a tent again. Even at weddings, they'll stay outside. They want nothing to do with it. That Stars and Stripes song that we were playing, can't hear it. Right. Uh, just so many so many things that, that the rest of their lives, they were so traumatized mm-hmm. by, by this event, uh, which is so sad. In 2002... The Hartford Circus Fire Memorial Foundation was established to erect a permanent memorial to the people who died in the fire. So ground was broken for the monument on July 6th, 2004, 
at the site where the fire occurred. Ringling Brothers and Barnum and & Bailey visited Hartford during its final tour, putting on its final performance there on April 30th, 2017. Interesting, huh? Mm-hmm. So the story of Little Miss 1565 has endured for so many years for a reason. I wanted to end this paragraph. I wanted to end the episode with this paragraph from Stuart Onan's book. Quote, To be lost and forgotten, to be abandoned, is a shared and terrible fear, just as our fondest hope as we grow older is that we might leave some part of us behind in the hearts of those we love and in that way live on. Perhaps in the end we will not be lost. In that respect, she has received the only gift that we can give her, a gift we wish desperately for our loved ones, a gift we all want finally to be remembered. And that is the terrible tragedy of the 1944 circus fire. Hmm. That was a lot. It's a lot. And uh, again, I only gave you like maybe three crumbs. <laughs> Not even the whole shebang. Yeah. It is a lot. It's What was the book called again? The book was called, you make me, The Circus Fire by Stuart Onam. Mm, okay. Yeah. You going to read it? Oh, I have so many <laughs> books to read. Oh, my gosh. I'll do it if it's an audi- audible. If it's an audible, yeah. You, it, I think it definitely is an audible, but it, it's it's a worthy read. It's really good. I actually don't know very much about the circus at all. Yeah. I mean, we have a pirate series coming up. Maybe we'll have a circus series coming up. I have so many things to say about the circus. You never know. You just never know. Well, if you enjoyed our episode or if you want to say hi or whatever... You can email us at killerspiritspod at gmail.com. We're also on Instagram at killerspiritspod. We're on TikTok at killerspiritspod. We're on Patreon, patreon.com backslash killerspiritspod, which is where we post all the videos of the drinks that we make. What else? Rate and review. Rate and review us. (laughs) And thank you guys for listening today because, man, that was a buckle up and take a seat and get a drink and just wait for next week. Get some popcorn. (laughs) Wait till next week. Wait till next week. (laughs) We love you guys so much. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Bye.